0: awesome work that we get to be a part of. Thank you, Missions Committee, for your thoughtful leadership. David Gregory is our current chair right now of that committee that helps us to find these meaningful partnerships that we can work with. Uh, There's a lot of long-time Woodmont, some of you remember Pam and Larry Swift, their daughter Rebecca Swift has worked at Salome for a long time, and a lot of Woodmont connections uh, to Salome and what they're doing there as we believe God has uh, called us to minister to everyone, especially to these refugees who come here fleeing very difficult circumstances, and even right now as we speak, our Swahili friends are starting to gather uh, in the chapel for their worship service, so uh, please continue to be a part of what God's doing uh, in Nashville, and and Woodmont specifically, uh, through your your tithes and offerings. We're in great shape financially, just want to let you know too that uh, our leadership, our our deacons, and our finance committee have just done a great job of administering things. Um, I'm not really gifted in administration, Uh, everyone wants their pastor to be a CEO and a preacher and teacher and a counselor and shepherd and all those things. And uh, only Jesus could do all those things perfectly. So uh, we are very blessed to have some wonderful administrative types and, and gifted uh, minds. I'm also excited to announce two big developments. If you missed the, the, the meeting, the business meeting on Wednesday night our uh capital campaign committee the prepare the way committee has been named and approved and we are excited if you're on that committee would you just stand right now i saw andrea would you just stand make sure everybody can uh see you know who you are jamie dunham excellent uh, we're gonna be praying for you guys this week and uh as you continue to uh help us think through preparing the way here at woodmont to be a part of what god wants to do Uh, through our church. Another big development, Jared and Dennis and uh, our church officers went down to the TBF, the Tennessee Baptist Foundation, and deposited an $80,000 check, which is the basis for the new 2100 Foundation. That's going to be a a fund that's going to be able to uh, generate some funds here. Uh, We're doing what Jesus said by investing the talents that he's given us in order to advance the kingdom. And it it probably is not going to really pay off a lot um, in the next five years, maybe not the next 10 years, but maybe long after we're gone, maybe in the year 2100, over the next 80 years of the church's life, it will be able to provide some resources for God's amazing work in Nashville and around the world. So cool things happening in our church right now. Thank you for being a part of it. All right dramas. How many of you like courtroom dramas? I love courtroom dramas. I I get really into, you know, JFK, A Few Good Men. You Can't Handle the Truth. I love it. Amistad. Have you seen Amistad? so good. Just Mercy. Have you seen that one? Bryan Stevenson's story. Incredible. All those Grisham novels, you know, Runaway Jury, uh, The Firm, uh, Rainmaker. They're they're all exciting because uh, we can relate to that. It's kind of realistic. Courtrooms are places where major life-changing decisions happen and take place. There's so much at stake as attorneys argue their cases before a, a judge and a jury, and these clients whom the lawyers represent are these people with some kind of backstory that has led them to this moment in their life, and now their worldly fate depends on what will happen there in that courtroom. So when I read our text for today, Galatians chapter 2, verses 17, through Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, I thought it kind of sounded like Paul is acting like an attorney here. And I don't mean that in a bad way, you lawyers, okay? <laughs> when he brings this new doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in this region of Galatia, where he planted these churches, it it sparks controversy. Of course it does. The the gospel message is scandalous. The gospel is a bold claim. It says that the, the high and holy God of all creation in his great love for the world has forged a way to make it all new again and he sent his only son as a way to save sinners, as a way to bring the crown of creation, human beings who are made in his image, who cannot save themselves. He has sent his only son to do for them what they could not do for themselves. He came to live among us, to give us words of life, to teach with authority, to dwell in our place, to put on flesh and ultimately to die an atoning death on a cross, only to rise again three days later, conquering the power of sin and death forever. That's more than a bold claim. It's the kind of claim that demands a verdict. Because if the gospel is right, if the gospel is good, if the gospel is true, then all other claims have no claim on our life. If it's true, then it's the most important and best news ever. Everything else in our lives, even our, our lives themselves, take a back seat to this claim of what God has done and who he is in his great love. Dane Ortland says, that's Ray Ortland's son, he's preached here, Ray Ortland. and he says, the gospel is not a hotel to pass through, it's a home to live in. The gospel's not a hotel to pass through, it's a home to live in, I love that. The gospel, once we receive it, it becomes the the overarching narrative of our lives. It becomes also the the story of our lives, thanks be to God. It becomes the trajectory of our lives. It becomes the purpose for our lives. and It becomes the joy of our lives, thanks be to God. So what we're going to see in our text for today is, is the gospel on trial in the courtroom of Galatia. The gospel on trial, that's your outline for today, and first we're going to see Paul acting like a defense attorney on the first part, and then we're going to see him flip to the prosecution side. So let's first uh, see how we see Paul acting like a defense attorney as he answers the objections that inevitably rise up in light of the gospel message. Let's start in Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. The the first objection that that Paul is is saying here is, is, is no, Jesus is not causing us to sin. No, Jesus is not causing us to sin. These these hard-headed Jewish Christians in Galatia still aren't getting it. It's, It's the same problem that Paul experienced for himself in Antioch when Peter was there and the leaders from the church in Jerusalem came. Remember, they were these very proud Jewish Christians, and they were shocked. They were scandalized when they saw Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians sitting at the same table partaking of the same food. It was so hard for them to conceive of their identity as the people of God apart from these Jewish laws. They thought that to to be Jewish was to be holy. To be Jewish was to be set apart from profane things and profane people that might defile you, that might make you unholy, that might make you unworthy to come before God. And just a couple of verses before this, Paul has explained that, that, that none of that matters when it comes to being right with God. Look back at verse 15. We didn't really do justice to verse 15 and 16 last week. We ourselves are Jews. He's telling them, hey, look, we're Jewish Christians by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's saying, yeah, we've been the good people. We've been the ones who followed all the rules. We've been the ones who are religious People. We were raised different than these pagan people. We weren't raised like these Romans who eat barbecue and, and, and cuss and drink and all these things that are terrible. And he says the next verse is the key. Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What Paul's saying here is the ground at the foot of the cross is level. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. All who come to Jesus for salvation, come by grace alone, through faith in Jesus alone. We bring nothing to the table, whether we're Jews or Greeks or or Romans or whatever. It doesn't matter. Our past, the, the way we were raised, our tribe, all those things ultimately do not matter when it comes to saving faith. You know, these poor misled people in Galatia are still seeing minor things like eating with Gentiles as sinful, as defiling. And they're telling Paul that, that by using the cross as an excuse to eat with Gentiles and co-mingle with these unclean people, that Paul's really saying that Jesus is causing us to defile ourselves. And that's, that's not right, they're saying. They don't get it. They don't get it. But they do have a point. Becoming a Christian does mean that you're probably gonna get dirty at some point. Remember who Jesus himself ate with. Prostitutes, Roman tax collectors, people with all kinds of gross skin diseases, those were his people. Children like Numa, who were seen as uh, they should be out of sight and out of mind and not uh, not speaking unless spoken to. Those are Jesus' people. When we follow Jesus, we might follow him into some dirty places. I saw a picture of Rob Caldwell in Waverly, Tennessee, after he had put on a hazmat suit and crawled underneath a formerly flooded house to repair some HVAC ducts. And when he emerged, Jim showed me the picture. He was gross. He was gross. He was completely covered in mud. But guess what? He was just following Jesus. He was just following Jesus. Jesus. You think about Dr. Dewey Dunn and all the places that he's been in third world countries where people who had all kinds of interesting smells and who don't do hygiene the way that we do hygiene had come to him for his medical services, just like Salome. But but Dewey and Bobby and, and, and so many others from this church who've been on the ground in these places, who have received people, who have touched them, who have smiled at them, who have prayed with them, who have sought to meet their physical and spiritual needs. They're just following Jesus. Nick and Connie Bushy are well known in in multiple housing projects across this city because they spend so much time there ministering to refugees and their families. They are just following Jesus. Jesus. When you follow Jesus, he might lead you to some places, I don't even wanna know where Jesus has led Calvin sometimes. Calvin Dunham has been all kinds of places following Jesus' lead. Places that might make us uncomfortable. Places that might make us defiled in the eyes of the elite. But ministry that leads us into uncomfortable places is, is not sin, it's a badge of honor. Paul's explaining that that kind of ministry doesn't defile anyone. It's an expression of the freedom that we now have in Christ. Jesus doesn't lead us into sin. Jesus leads us into righteousness and into making the world right as well, bringing hope and healing everywhere that we go. I know that Jared and Amy's car sometimes has been filled with so many refugee kids (laughs) and that Jeep that I wonder how many seats does that Jeep have as they drive them to and from their home and to and from tutoring. They're just following Jesus and the freedom that we have in Christ because we're all the same. Gentiles, Jews, male, female, we're gonna see later in chapter three that the ground is level, every Christian was a sinner, was once a sinner, saved by grace, through faith. And so Paul says in verse 18, look, even if I built the law back up, which I had torn down, even if I built it back up and reinstated all the rules about what make us holy or not, it would only prove how sinful we are all anyway. It would only show us how far short we fall of God's standard of holiness. So the second objection that Paul's going to defend the gospel against it's found in the next three verses. Let's read verses 19 through 21. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a powerful verse. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What we're going to see here is that Paul's been preaching and teaching about how the gospel gives this ultimate freedom, which people hear and ultimately say, well, fine, if there's no rules, then let's all just go crazy and live a life of debauchery. That's been happening for 2,000 years. And Paul's basically saying here, no, I'm not saying to go out and live a life of sin. I'm not saying to go out and live a life of sin. That's not what the gospel is saying. Timothy George, the, the founding dean of Beeson Divinity School, where I attended at Stanford University, not Stanford, Sam, not Stan, uh, he has written a beautiful commentary. I told Morgan I found it. And I was like, this is so helpful because phrases like, through the law, I died to the law. What does that mean? And and Dr. George is just one of the the best uh, expositors of Scripture. He says that Paul gives us four thesis statements in these verses to back up his defense. He gives us four clear theses that show us why he's not saying to go out and live a life of sin. First, he says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God through the law shows that we're all infected by sin to the point of it being terminal. We all have this sinful impulse to to do wrong and to go against the ways of God that are life-giving and to do the things of sin which are destructive. Sin always destroys. Sin ultimately kills. Sin always breaks down. But now we've died to the law. In other places, Paul makes the same kind of argument that he's died to self, that he's died to sin, that he's died to the world. And what he's saying is that being united with Christ so radically alters your conception and your relationship to these other entities to the point that they no longer define us, that they no longer control us, that they no longer have dominion over us. That's good news, right? That not even the law, not the world, not sin, and and not even ourselves are any longer in control. Good news. The second thesis is in verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. Remember what the uh, German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To follow Christ means what? Jesus said to take up your cross and follow me. Where do we follow Jesus with our cross? Down the Via Dolorosa, down the way of suffering, and up to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, where we die to ourselves, where we die to ourselves. And that sounds scary. That might sound like it's a, a bad thing. But ultimately, in dying to ourselves, we find life, true, abundant Life. It's the only way to truly live. The beauty of the gospel is that after we die with Jesus, we are then raised into a new kind of life, a new kind of humanity. We're a new creation because we've died to ourselves and we find that real life through Jesus. Next, the third thesis Paul says, It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You know, the indwelling of Jesus is a miracle, it's a miracle. If you are in Christ, then Christ is in you. How does that happen? It's only by God's grace. When we die to ourselves and we're raised to that new life, that life is Christ in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. He's now at home in our hearts. There's a great old praise song that says, come and make my heart your home. Come and make my heart your home. I love that song. He's now at home in our hearts, making us more like him from the inside out as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Finally, the fourth thesis statement that Paul gives us is, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's not forget that all of this gospel is because of who God is, that he is agape, gift, love. That's his essence. I had a professor in seminary who one time was explaining, uh, you know, discipleship and and daily uh, growth, and he he pulled this chain out of his collar, this little chain with a a cross on it, and he said, every morning uh, I, I pick this up off my nightstand, and I put it on, and as I do so, I put on Christ, and I'm reminded of Christ living in me, and I say a little prayer. Lord, today I give you all of this from my head to my toes. He was in the army. He said, what are my marching orders for this day, oh God? It was just a way of dedicating himself every morning uh, to the Lord and to the Lord's plans for his life. Because once we've died to ourselves, we can no longer live for ourselves. We now live for something much, much bigger than ourselves. You know, in our culture today of of hyper-individualism, it's really hard to get people To live for something beyond themselves. Because our whole culture teaches that just live for yourself. You're the most important thing. And to get people to buy into something that's bigger is is difficult. But here's the thing. Living for ourselves, ourselves are pretty puny. Ourselves are pretty puny. Living for something bigger is such a better way to live. There's nothing bigger than the gospel of Jesus Christ and the high and holy God who has enacted it. That's so much a better way to live because we are far less good than God and then we are settling for a far less good if we live for anything less. Okay, now that Paul's defended the gospel against these objections that have come against it, it's like he flips a switch and goes on, offense now. I love to watch basketball and all these transition, you know, from from offense to defense or from defense to offense. Good defense leads to offense a lot of times, and good offense sometimes is spurred on by good defense. Paul flips the switch now, and he's like, okay, now you sit down, Galatians. It's time for me to ask you some questions now as the prosecuting attorney. He puts the Galatians on the witness stand and calls on them to answer his objections. That's the next part of our outline, Paul the prosecutor, questions asked. We're going to see five questions in five verses that each demand an answer. Paul's so exasperated by this point, too. Look at how he starts out in verse 1 of chapter 3, oh foolish Galatians. What he's really saying is, oh stupid Galatians, Oh, oh you dummies, the Phillips translation, some of you know the J.B. Phillips translation it actually says, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. That's how he starts that out. We don't say that in our house. I hope my kids aren't listening. <laughs> oh, foolish Galatians. That's some tough language, but remember that Paul is writing with a pastor's heart. He loves these people, he loves them. Earlier in chapter one, he called them brothers and sisters. Later in chapter four, we're going to see him call them children. And sometimes we have to be a little stern with our children. Paul loves these people dearly, but he's calling them out in love. I had a a friend who was telling me about one of his friends who had gotten arrested for for doing some pretty terrible things. And uh, some of of his buddies got together when he got out of of jail and uh, his mentor was there. It was their Sunday school teacher, actually. And when the guy walked through the door, they hugged him and, and the mentor Uh, just embraced this guy and said, you dummy. (laughs) He just called him out and said, "What what a stupid thing to do. But he did it in love and in correction, and they walked with him through that restoration time and process. But sometimes you just have to call out through tears maybe what the truth is. You know, his love for this guy was unconditional, but he also was committed to restoring him to gospel sanity, as Scotty Smith says. What Paul is calling into question here isn't the mental intelligence of the Galatians. This is an advanced society that he's writing to. The question is their spiritual intelligence. Someone had spiritually misled them, which is why the first question that Paul asks is who bewitched you or who cast a spell on you is the first point in your outline. Who cast a spell on you to get your spiritual focus off of Christ? And, and out of whack. Paul knew that these false teachers, these Judaizers had come in and, and messed the Galatian churches up, but when he asked who has cast a spell on you, the, the who is in the singular, which most scholars think he's talking about our great enemy, Satan. He's saying who has cast a spell on you? This is evil, and this is orchestrated by our enemy who's trying to kill you. Spiritually, who's trying to destroy you physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Most of all, spiritually. Satan would love for our churches to be led to confusion over the gospel, to be fighting over things that don't ultimately matter because he knows that when the gospel is consistently proclaimed, the pure, unadulterated truth of God's plan and who he is, when that is believed and loved and preached and taught, then the kingdom of God will advance. And our enemy doesn't want that to happen. Paul says they should know better. Because he and and Barnabas clearly, publicly taught Christ and Christ crucified. They didn't shy away from the gospel message and everything hinges on Jesus. Let's go on to verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or passively by hearing with active faith? Did you receive it through works of the law or did you receive it through faith? The second question he's asking them is How did the Holy Spirit enter your souls? How did He get there? Was it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He reminds them of their own conversion experience. Remember when you first came to faith in Christ and surrendered everything that you were to Him and you were filled up with the Holy Spirit as you were raised into that new life in Christ? Yeah, how did that happen? Was there some magic formula that you enacted that you had to get right? And sometimes churches teach this badly and sometimes we think, did I do that right? Did I use the right words in the prayer? Did, did Dr. Sherman really get me all the way under when he baptized me? I don't know if I, my nose is not saved or, or something. I don't know if I, I did it right. But here's the thing. Verse two says, you received the Spirit. It doesn't say that you obtained the Spirit. The Spirit. You didn't earn the spirit. It's the same verb that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter four, verse seven. "What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That verse was so impactful to a young scholar in the late 300s named Augustine in North Africa who would go on to be one of the greatest theologians in church history and, and bishop uh, there in, in the north part of Africa, that verse helped him understand the mystery of God's grace. We've been dancing around that word grace, but, but I want to just hit on that right here. Grace is a gift. Grace is not something that is earned. Grace is something that is completely Uh, unobtainable on our own. If God's grace was something we could get for ourselves, then it wouldn't be grace. In Romans, Paul talks about how this is a free gift, a 100% free gift. So the next question that Paul asks continues to press the Galatians to remember their conversion experience. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, are you so foolish? Again, there's that harsh word. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, by your own strength, by your own abilities? He's basically asking, will you finish like you started? Will you finish like you started? That's the only way to finish. Or will you abandon the sanctifying work of the Spirit in your life for a bunch of rules that you can't keep anyway? You know, we like rules, don't we? I mean, none of us. Like being told what to do. i'm I'm kind of a you know second born rebel child, right? I, I don't like being told what to do, but rules make us feel two things. One, that we are good people because we follow the rules, and two, that being a good person is up to me. that's under my control. You know, I've heard podcasts and read articles and books about how we crave sermons where the preacher tells us what to do so we can go out and, and put our, pat ourselves on the back when we do what he says, and we're quick to forget that our righteousness is not up to us. God doesn't love us any more when we follow the rules. He doesn't love us any less when we don't follow the rules. Why are we so gospel resistant? Because we're prideful people, because we're fallen in our human flesh. The way to finish well in this new life in Christ is the same way that we started it, by grace through faith. The way to finish this new life in Christ well is the same way you started it, by grace through faith. We continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior by dying more and more to our old selves and letting the gospel resurrect us more and more into a new self then our lives won't have been in vain. That's the next point that Paul asks here in verse four. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Was it all for nothing? Has this all been in vain? You know, you could have been spared persecution and all the hardships that have come from following Christ, crawling under a muddy house, going to third world countries. You didn't have to do any of that being ostracized perhaps from your family and friends, coming under political persecution with the Roman government. You could have avoided all of that. Are you gonna give up now on the gospel? You could have bailed at any time. Are you gonna do it now? Or are you gonna quit? Paul's saying, come on guys, we're betting our lives on this. Let's double down on the gospel and on, let's double down on God's grace that comes through faith. And that leads to his final question. Look at verse five. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does he who supplies the spirit, he's basically saying, look, look around, snap out of it and look around. Do you see people going from death to life in Christ? That's a miracle. Do you see God's supernatural work in supplying needs in just the right way at just the right time? Do you see healing take place? Do you see restoration of relationships? These are miracles. How do you think it all happens? Is it because you're such good people? No, all you do is hear and believe and God does the rest. The gospel demands a verdict. Either it's good and true or it's not. Either it brings life, abundant life, a life of freedom and flourishing in Christ, a life of truth, a life of love, or it doesn't. Either it's the best way to live, the only way to live, or it's not. Paul has lovingly and pastorally called us out and put each of us on the witness stand today. How will we answer his questions? Maybe we need to snap out of it and stop living as if the gospel isn't really good news. Let's not fall back. Let's not settle for less like the Galatians did. Let's stop being gospel resistant and double down on God's amazing grace. He who began a good work in us is faithful to bring it to completion. Let's pray. Lord God, our myopic view is so severely limited that we forget how great you are. And how great the gospel is. What you've done for us through Jesus is so beautiful. As you have given yourself to us. As you have spared no expense in order to make us new. And to make us a part of your family. As you have brought us into your own kingdom. Through our conversion here in this life and when you come to restore the kingdom fully in the next life. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. We can't thank you enough, and we can never repay you for what you've done in the free gift of salvation that you have forged for us. But I pray you would help us to live captivated by the gospel. Help us to live lives that are fully betting on the gospel as our firm foundation. As we just sang earlier, God, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. We stand on the solid rock. Nothing else, God, no charismatic preaching, no uh, amazing music, no fun fellowship events, no cool Sunday school classes, God, none of that stuff is what's gonna ultimately cause this church to succeed in being the body of Christ. Only the good news of Jesus and your word will serve as that foundation. So Lord, we pray that you would come into our hearts now, that you would fan into flame our passion for you because you are that gift love that keeps giving of yourself. We do pray, just as the song says, that you would come and make our hearts, your home, that we would prepare room. And just as Joy of the World says, that every heart would prepare room for you, our King, that you would be fully established on the throne of our lives as we surrender, as we submit to you and your ways, because you and your ways are infinitely higher and better than ourselves and our ways. God, we thank you for the gospel. May it change the way we live from this time forth and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you've never uh, died that death, maybe you've never surrendered all that you are to him, there's no better time to do so than right now. We are evangelicals. We believe that you come to a point in your life where you realize that you cannot save yourself and where you cry out, Jesus, save me. Do for me what I cannot do for myself. We call that a conversion experience, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and begins that sanctifying work. Yes, you stand justified at that moment before the Holy God, fully covered by the blood of Christ, all your sins forgiven and atoned for. But then you also enter into that sanctifying life, where God is not done with you, thank God, yet, as as I am still a work in progress, and you all are. I was confessing to our small group, our life group this morning about, you know, some uh, thing that happened with the deacons and how I was upset and they said, you get upset with with deacons? (laughs) I said, yes, every pastor does. (laughs) And and we're just as broken and fallen as anybody. But thank God that he's making me new and that he's making you new from the inside out more and more as we die to ourselves each day and put on Christ more and more each day. If you wanna accept him as your Lord and Savior, I'm gonna be down front as we sing our hymn of response. Maybe you just wanna come to the altar and pray. Maybe when I gave that welcome this morning, that was you, you're just worn out. You're just so exhausted by this pandemic, by people who have uh, died, maybe that are loved ones. My parents said they had three of their loved ones who've died recently during this Omicron uh, variant. It's a crazy time. People ask me, how's Woodmont doing? I was like, it's a weird time. It's a weird time, but God is good and he's faithful, and the gospel is good news, and we stand on that firm foundation. Whatever it is that you need to do, maybe you're ready to join Woodmont Baptist Church and say, we want to invest in what God's doing here. We want to officially move our membership here. If that's you today, then come forward now. Uh, Let's stand and sing. Whatever the Lord lays on your heart, then please deal with him honestly today.